We are a people who live by faith, right? Yeah, we're people that live by faith. We're people who say that we walk by faith. We are a people who have a hope because of that faith, our faith, and our hope is on display. I know we don't like to think about it, and it's pretty convicting, it's pretty challenging when I just think back of this last week, or maybe even for you this morning, that our hope is on display in every arena of our lives. Every decision you make, every choice you take, every response you create to the situations and the relationships that each of us have in our lives, they're all fueled, they're all motivated by hope in something. Like today, every one of us has hope in something. Your story, the story of your life is a hope story, if you stop think about it that way. Your happiest moments are hope moments, hope fulfilled. It happened. This is awesome. This is amazing. Um, your saddest moments are moments where hope is destroyed, where hope is dashed. You're, you and I, we're always looking for hope. We're always putting our hope into something you're always attaching the hope of your heart and the hope of your faith to something. It's something that you believe can deliver. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. The writer of Hebrews tells us what hope is and where it should be placed. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What are you hoping for? the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. If we had to write down honestly where our hope was today, I think that probably a lot of people, the majority of people in our world, would write down something that is visible. I'm just guessing. So what is the object of your faith today? Forget about your kid's faith. Forget about your parents' faith. Forget about your grandparents. Forget about my faith. What is the object of your faith today? What would you write down on that piece of paper? What is it that you really put your hope into? Because hope always has an object. Hope always has an expectation. This is what I hope happens. And in our fallenness, how many of you are fallen today? This is good therapy, by the way. Put your hand up. All right. In our fallenness, we tend to look for hope in all the wrong places, <laughs> looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. Our, our lives are often a country western song. We look, yes, I know. I feel the same way. We look for hope where it can't be found. It's a human condition. And that's why so often people get discouraged. They are disappointed. They get frustrated. And they even get confused. Like, why is this happening in our world today? How could this happen to our family? Because we want things to give us hope, whether it be family, a relationship, whatever. But those things can never deliver. 
They just can't. Not consistently. They can't deliver hope. And maybe we're, we're tempted to find our hope in the constant affirmation of the people who are in our lives. You know, you know, please just make me feel good about me. Would you just do that for me right now? Would you please, everybody? No, come on. See, it doesn't work. And we tend to attach ourselves to the hopes that will just never consistently deliver. Deliver what it is that we're hoping they will deliver. And as, all, as always, it's to God's word on the matter of hope today that we're going to turn to. And I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59. That's where we're going to spend this morning. Isaiah chapter 59. Because God alone, God always provides us with hope. This is the only place to go. Hope delivered on time, every time, at the right time. And there are many hope passages. I could have gone to so many hope passages today as I was looking at this, but the reason I chose Isaiah 59, it's such a brilliant hope message because it's written in an extremely dark moment. Out of the dark moments in Israel's history, this might be one of the darkest. So here's the question for each of us today. When life is hard, has life been hard? When life is hard for you, when it's difficult, when it's confusing and the answers aren't on the tip of your tongue or anybody else's tongue, when you're dealing with the unexpected because guaranteed the unexpected's going to happen, when your story is not the story you wish you hoped for that it would be, where do you run for hope? Where do you run for comfort? Where do you turn for security? What, where, no, where is your functional hope? All right? I, I know that many of you would have written on that paper, and I as well, where our hope is that it's in God, that's in faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about the hope that we talk about on Sundays. I'm talking about the one that you lean on on Mondays. Because it might not be the same. In my experience as a pastor working with people, believers in Jesus Christ, I often find that the functional hope is not Jesus Christ in action. And the children of Israel... They've been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. We read about this uh, a year and a half ago through COVID. We went through the book of Daniel. Very appropriate. They've been conquered and they've been enslaved for 70 years. And I'm sure while many of them had lost hope, a functional hope, some were still clinging to hope based on God's faithfulness. God brought them back to Jerusalem, but guess what? It's a mess. There are, there are no city walls for protection. There's no temple to worship in. There's no central government. There's no enforceable set of laws. There's no obvious leadership. There's no justice. There's violence in the streets. There is massive poverty. There is complete fundamental social breakdown. It's a mess. And it may sound somewhat familiar to some of you today. And into that darkness... God delivers one of the most brilliant messages of hope. Real, guaranteed hope. Some may even consider it to be one of the most brilliant discussions of hope in Scripture. 
It's in these kinds of dark moments when your true, real hope is exposed. And your true, real hope will either come through for you every time, if it really is true, real hope, or it will deeply disappoint you. Let's look at Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, says Isaiah the prophet, as God speaks through him, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. And in the context of where Isaiah is going here, God is, through the prophet, answering a charge, a charge that his own children, his own people, have just delivered against him. And when life isn't working, when we're suffering in some way, disappointed in something, which is sometimes a daily thing, when the comfort and ease that you had been enjoying is interrupted or even taken away or threatened, it's very tempting for us in those moments to bring God into the court of our own judgment. (laughs) How ludicrous, but that's what we do. And we question His faithfulness. We question His goodness, His wisdom. We even question His love. It's very tempting to say to God, God, where are you? Have you ever said that? You don't have to put your hand up. Have you ever thought that? Where is your faithfulness? Where is your grace? Where is your love? I thought you answered prayers. God, where are you? And here's what's devastating about this kind of thing that comes to us so easily. When you allow your heart to begin to question God's unfathomable wisdom, His overwhelming goodness, His eternal presence, you typically don't run to Him for help in those moments because you're questioning if He's faithful. That's when people leave church. And over COVID and the aftermath of it, they've they've been walking out that door in waves. I tried it, but it just didn't work. And to this charge, God says in verse 2, but your iniquities, this is God now, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so so he does not hear you. God says, no, you've got it wrong. You've got it all wrong, people. What's going on is not a sign that my hand is too short, my arms are too short to reach you. What's going on is not a sign that my ears are too dull to hear your prayers. I'm not the problem. Do you ever complain to God? Some of you are smiling. Do you ever have a debate with God, your Father in heaven, that might go something like this? Okay, Father, I don't like what's going on but I know I'm the problem. Amen. Probably not, right? Am I, am I getting out of line here? No. No. <laughs> we tell God who's the problem. We even have a name or a list of names. We list for God what the problems are, and then we say, fix it. Remove it. 
And then God, through Isaiah, goes on to describe the real problem. Our problem is that we like to think that our deepest, biggest problems in life are outside of us, right? We point, not inside of us. We surmise that it's a problem of situation. This current situation in our nation is causing this. No, it's not. I typically, well, it's a problem of location. I live in Michigan. That's the problem. Or, or problems of relationships. We won't do any illustrations there. I typically like to think that I'm one of the good guys. How about you? Do you think I'm one of the good guys? Come on, make me feel good about myself. <laughs> Please. Yeah, we, we do. We think, yeah, it's, it's those people. I'm one of the good guys, and God says, let me tell you what is the real problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. The problem exists inside of you. Isn't that why people like um, protests? We as a nation have seen a lot of protests in America, haven't we? I mean, and you'll never find somebody in a protest carrying a sign with an arrow po pointing down that says, I'm the problem. I haven't seen it yet. There may have been one, but I have not seen that happen. And at the base of all those things that you and I claim are problems, what do you find? People. People like you and people like me. Oh, Pete, Pete, we're not that bad. You see, that's the problem. There's no such thing as a dangerous neighborhood. Pete, I've got some neighborhoods you should go walk through. Neighborhoods never did anything bad. Neighborhoods never hurt you. You've never been hurt by a neighborhood. Why are neighborhoods dangerous? Police officers, please tell me. Because there are people in those neighborhoods who do evil, violent, dangerous things. There's no such thing as a corrupt government. The institution itself is not the problem. The problem is people in government will at times use their power and their authority for personal gain. We see it over and over again all over the world. And they don't actually exercise their authority for the welfare of their citizens that they were elected to represent. And the minute you and I sit under God's Word, that's the minute we realize what a brilliant diagnostic He's giving us here. Oh, we're the problem. We have taken God's beautiful, glorious, wisely created institutions, and we've made a mess out of them. It's us. And that means you can't find hope by running to a new location. Oh, go ahead, move. There's nothing wrong with moving, by the way. If, if you're tired of winter, go south. It's, it's totally fine. But guess what you're going to find there? No snow, but people. A new situation? People. A new relationship? People. You'll never find true, lasting hope that way. It can't be found. Because God is right. And God is right every time.
His diagnostic is always spot on. My sin nature still lurks inside of me. I know this is a shock to so many of you. It's quite a confession. But it is dark and it is dangerous. It kidnaps my thoughts. It diverts my desires. It distorts my words. It drives my behavior. And in Isaiah 59, the prophet uses three words for this thing that still plagues me and still plagues you. The first word is iniquity. Iniquity is a Hebrew word that means moral uncleanness. Again, I'd like to think that I'm pure. I do. I wake up every morning. (laughs) And then I look in the mirror. Because see, I know as a follower of Jesus Christ that God sees me through the blood of Jesus Christ. I am washed clean. Amen? My standing before holy God is clean. But in practice, each and every day, I'm not always pure. I'm not like all the rest of you. My motives aren't always pure. My desires aren't always pure. My purposes aren't always pure. My thoughts aren't always pure because there's moral uncleanness inside of me. And that's going to be the reality until one day Jesus redeems my body. And I can hardly wait. But the second word is transgression. And transgression means high-handed rebellion. <laughs> oh, we are rebels. and <laughs> We don't even have a cause. It's, it's unwillingness it's, uh, to, to, to obey God, but a willingness to step over his boundaries. Boundaries that you and I know are there. We're not blind to them. Let's all be honest. Do you ever willingly step over the boundaries of God's rules? Come on. Seriously. Sanctimonious, righteous. Let's all be honest. We do. Why? Bottom line is, is that we don't care. We don't care. It's the moment when you park in the no parking spot. Yeah, I I saw you the other day. Even though you saw the sign and you know what it means, because you just don't care. And you make up excuses. I was in a hurry and it was raining and there were 10 spots and they're all empty. Why would anybody put a no parking spot right there? There's nothing wrong with parking here. And I'm buying gifts for someone who's in desperate need and you make up your excuse. If you said something unkind to your spouse this week, everybody's looking down right now. You didn't speak unkindly because you were ignorant about the fact that it was wrong. You said it because at the moment you didn't give a rip that it was wrong. If you cheat on your taxes, oh, Pete, please don't go there. I just turned them in. If you cheat on your taxes, you don't cheat on your taxes because you're ignorant that it's wrong. You cheat on your taxes because at that moment you don't care what is right and you don't care what is wrong. You willingly step over that boundary because you want something and believe you deserve something, 
or someone else doesn't deserve something. And you'll even use this crazy self-serving logic to explain your actions. And someone else listening to you is going, it doesn't make any sense at all. And the third word is sin. This is one we're all familiar with. Sin is a, a word in the Bible that means missing the mark. That a mark that our holy God has set in stone. And missing again and again and again. It's pulling back the arrow with the bowstring as far as you can, and every single time you fall short of the target, way short. You're not even close. Our greatest problem, the thing that most needs to be fixed, is inside of each of us, not outside of us. And that's God's truth on the matter, and that's the only truth that really does matter. And you'll never find hope if you don't first listen to God's accusation that He gives to us through Isaiah the prophet to people thousands of years ago, but relevant, absolutely truth for you and I today. But watch this. God's accusation is now followed by a confession. This is the cool part of Isaiah 59, verses 9 to 11. Therefore, this is the people talking back to God now. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, and we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We, we all growl like bears. You, want to, you know anybody like that? We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. Have you ever been in a dark room, fumbling for the light switch? You know it's there. You just can't. Was it here? Was it here? And it's completely pitch black, and you're fumbling for it, so you're using the wall to move around the room. That's the picture. That's the picture of what it's like for us every day without light. When you've lost your way, you usually come to a very significant moment of decision. You'll either point the finger or you'll make the confession. And confession is what happens next. Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Like we saw the signs, we just disobeyed them. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. God, we accept it, we own up, we're the problem. It's on us. And once you and I come to those moments of decision when we're walking in darkness and refusing to see the light, we are now at an utterly hopeless place. Because you're saying to God, I've got this deep, big abiding problem that I can't solve. I, I, I can run from a situation. I can run from a location. I can run from a relationship. But I can't run from me. Because <laughs> if you run from you as fast as you can, have you tried this? as fast as you can, when you get to wherever it is that you're going, you're still with you. 
And here's the shocking reality of coming to a place of recognition. And by the way, it's a place that God has brought you to. You didn't do this on your own. Because it is now the doorway to real hope. That admission, that confession. Because it tells you not only is it hopeless to hope in you, but it's hopeless to hope in anybody or anything else because they all suffer from the same condition that you do. Everybody, all of us in this room. And all those locations and all those situations and all those places where you, are, where you would like to run are populated by people who are desperately as hopeless as you are, looking for love in all the wrong places. There is no hope to be found. You can't outrun you, and you can't for sure outrun God. Look at the brilliance of where God goes next, starting in the second half of verse 15 and going into 16. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. God looks around and he says, nobody down there is able to give you hope. A hope that you're seeking, no one. And in the light of this disaster, all the lostness, all the rebellion, all the transgression, and all the sin, look what God does next when his people repent. He doesn't turn his back. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't say, I've had it. I'm going to wipe you all out. Then his own arm that one that they had said was too short. Remember back a couple of verses? Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Whenever you see that phrase throughout the whole Old Testament, the arm of the Lord, it's one of the names for Messiah, who we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is saying, now that you're at a moment where you utterly have no hope and you get it, I'm going to send you hope. This is what I've been waiting for. And it won't be a situation. It won't be a human relationship. It will be a person, and his name is Jesus. Hope is going to come. And that promised hope would bring with him two things. We read in these verses, justice, which everybody wants today, and grace, which is available today. Look at the verses that follow. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. These are all verses about Jesus. 750 years before Jesus came. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, which would be the east. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. It's very clear from these passages in Isaiah that our God is absolutely and perfectly committed to justice in spite of what you and I might see in our world today. Sin, all sin will be dealt with. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, this doesn't sound very comforting, Pete. Because where's the comfort in knowing that even then my sin will be dealt with? Because you're not going to escape, right? It's for all of us. Well, well would you want to live in a world 
that was ruled by someone who didn't care about justice? Well, Pete, I think I am. Would you want to? Do you want, to keep, does you want to keep this thing to keep going? Do you want to live in a world where the person ruling is incapable of being angry with evil as God sees evil? God's righteous anger and his holy justice are the only hope for this universe. God's anger with sin and his commitment to justice means that he will not rest until sin is forever defeated. It means he will not quit until every molecule of sin is delivered out of every cell of every heart of every one of his children. And one day, you and I, you if you are like me, know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you and I will experience freedom like we've never known it. And there will be a moment where sin will be no more. Amen? And, there will, and it's going to be because there is a holy God who is committed to justice. It's the only way. But he doesn't just come armed with justice. He comes loaded with grace. Look at uh, verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion. That's Jerusalem. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Redemption. It's a beautiful word. To redeem means to buy back something. To buy back. And we know from the life and times of Jesus Christ that we just finished going through in the gospel account written by the apostle John that God sent his son into this world and he lived on our behalf the perfect life that you and I could not live. And he took our sin as horrible and decrepit as it is. He took our sin that we could never pay for. He took it on himself and he died the death that you and I are supposed to die. And he died as a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice. And his death justifies God's anger and, and, and his justice towards sin. And he rose again. And he conquered even death so that he can give to you and I eternal life. So by his life and by his death and by his resurrection, his righteousness to do the right things, to live righteously, to be seen as clean before God is now given over to my account, to your account, if you believe, so that we can now stand before a holy God as if we never sinned. So that we have no fear about the wrath that is coming so that we can have him wrap his arms of acceptance around us and welcome us as his children into this intimate fellowship and relationship with him. No longer does your sin separate you, as Isaiah said earlier, no longer does it separate you from him. That's redemption. It's a huge word. These verses, especially verses 16 to 20, written 750 years before Jesus, they are a prediction of the cross of Jesus Christ, way before God actually made it so. And the only way you will ever find hope is to give up on all those places where you've tended to put your hope, maybe where you're putting it today, a hope that can never deliver. It just can't. 
And ironically, the doorway to hope is hopelessness. It's for our salvation from sin, where we enter into this relationship with God, and it's for walking in that relationship after salvation when we all tend to slip and fall. Hope to be reliable must be trustworthy. To be hope, it must fix what was broken. Hope to be hope must address the biggest, deepest, darkest dilemmas of our lives. If hope can't fix what is broken, why would you put your hope in it? And it's not a situation, it's not a location, it's not a re- an experience. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. It's to Jesus that we turn right now. If you're visiting with us today on the first Sunday of every month, we celebrate communion, sometimes called the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Table. Taking us back to that night before Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of humanity where he told his disciples that the bread represented his broken body that would be broken, that the cup represented his blood spilled to cover our sin. And we are asked to remember that often. I'm going to give you a few moments, all of us a few moments, to just meditate and consider our standing before God based on the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and the new life that we have through his resurrection to live this out in our world today. And how are we doing? Give you a moment. And on that evening, as they're all gathered around the table, Jesus said, take this bread. And it says that he broke it. And he passed it around. He said, take this bread, which is my body, which is going to be given for you. Let's do this together in unity. And then the cup, which Christ said was his blood, which is poured out for all 
mankind. I hope that we never get over this. That it never becomes ritual, that it never becomes old. That every time we remember the death of Christ on the cross for our sins, it's new. And it reminds us of who we are, whose we are, and what really matters. Let's take it together. Would you all rise with me? We're going to close in singing. I'm going to, I'm going to lead us in prayer as we get ready to uh, respond to God for what we have heard from Him in His Word. Isn't it amazing that He knows the prayers that we're going to be sending up already? I find that amazing. Bob with me. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to sing with our voices from hearts that have been challenged and moved by your precious words. As we prepare to spend time together eating food that's been prepared, uh, Lord, we give you thanks. Thanks for that food. Thank you for this, really this food that we have taken as a symbol of the only thing that really does fill us and satisfy our thirst. And Lord, now we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.